Welcome back, creeps. Oh, we're starting from the beginning? Yeah. Oh. I deleted all the rest of it. I was like, fuck it. Alright. This is our second time trying this episode because there's some arsehole in the house behind us that decided I'm going to cut a tree up. <laughs> and I'm convinced he was watching through the blinds. They're like, okay, go now, now, now. They're recording. <laughs> Vindictive bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we're going to get straight into it this week. Yeah. No messing around. Picking up from last time. Before we do. Yeah. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate, review, all that nice stuff on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to us, watch us. And if you do want to buy some of our lovely new merch, make sure to check out our Redbubble store. Yeah, and it's not even expensive. Yeah. It's fine. All right. (laughs) So if you listened to last week, which if you haven't, and this is your first episode, stop Go back and listen to last week because this is a two-part or a three-part series. Yeah. Um, and I'm going first this week. So this is Demon of Brownsville Road Part 2. Yes. You need all the pieces to make the whole story. It's kind of like the Ikea furniture. You can't have box one and two without box three. Basically. Or else you have only have like half a bed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So... I think this is where I finished up last week. Um, so, at this point in the story, we're up to January 2004. So, on the advice of Mother Maria, Bob's friend in the convent, mm. Bob gets in touch with a Father Ed Moran, who was a priest from the affiliate monastery, who I think I mentioned last week. It was like St. Paul of the Passionist Daughter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and he had already met Father Moran before from just attending Mass in the convent on a Saturday. And Father Ed explains to him like that he's more than willing to help. He's not an expert, mm. but he'll take a look kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he also warns Bob that these things take a very long time. Yeah. Can take a very long time at least. Mm. So the next weekend he comes over and they hold a Mass in the house, in the living room. Mm-hmm. Followed by prayers of banishment. And the whole family willingly participate. Although Jessica took her baby Colin out. Because I think he was just being a baby and making noise and stuff. So there was no like. No consequences of that or anything. It's just like the whole family was there and involved and stuff. While the mass was going on. Everything was like fine and dandy. There's no, no drama. Very uneventful. But the very next day. Bob finds that all of his artwork is hanging askew. Mm. So it hadn't even been like knocked off the walls or anything. Or earthquakey. Yeah, it was literally just... But every single piece had been moved one way or another. Okay. So I have here like the entity, which is what we're calling it. Mm-hmm. Like definitely didn't appreciate being told to leave. But this was just the start of more kind of heavier activity. Mm-hmm. Like a little more than just fucking with the light. Yeah, or the light string. Yeah, the chain for the light. This piece here is. There's actually a lot more reading from the book as well. Mm. But I'll let you all know when I'm reading from the book and when I'm just spitting the verse, you know? <laughs> it would move furniture and pictures, and it once turned the water on in the third floor bathroom while plugging the sink so that the water eventually made its way down to the first floor. We weren't home when it happened and came back to find the mess. 
Another time, I had started a slow-running hot bath, calculating that it would take about 10 minutes for the tub to fill up. This was my nightly ritual for years. On this night, I went into another room to finish writing what had happened that day in my journal, only to hear Lisa screaming to me just a couple of minutes later that there was water coming down into the kitchen, which was below our bathroom. I ran to the tub to find both the cold and hot water handles wide open and the tub overflowing. I could almost hear the thing laughing at me. What a dick. Yeah, and that seems to be like how it like kind of retaliates. Mm. They soon start to kind of learn the dynamics of the entity. Now that they've started pushing back, mm-hmm. it seems like the en- the entity would draw energy from the family fighting mm. like obviously with each other and then it would disappear for a few days and they would have nothing but every time it disappeared um it would come back with like a bang so mm. it's like it was recharging like i have here it's taking a little personal time mm. or it's like maybe like accumulating all the it's almost like it's grocery shopping or some shit yeah literally it's like, like all right i'm gonna make y'all fight and that's like the ghost grocery shopping, like harnessing all this energy and then going home to prepare a big meal and then like no activity. And it comes back with like, bam, bitches, Thanksgiving dinner in your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, like this is what would happen. Is that a weird analogy? <laughs> no, no, no. They especially noticed that anytime they held mass in the house, the entity would start fucking shit up for a few days and then go quiet again. As well, Bobby and Charlie are still suffering with their mental health, like, quite badly at this point. Like, Bobby was obviously more in the spotlight because of, like, the fights and stuff like that. But Charlie had also been suffering from, like, debilitating anxiety this whole time. Bobby had officially been diagnosed with bipolar and had been doing stints in a psychiatric hospital. And he was also still being violent. But I do think it's worth mentioning, like... It's good to see that they're not relying solely on, you know, their faith and saying that it's all down to the entity. Like they are being logical people and saying, no, you know, these guys do need to be medicated and and whatnot. But one morning, Bobby knocked Lisa to the floor while she was trying to get him out of bed, twisting her wrist and almost breaking her ankle. On another occasion, he punched the dashboard in her car, breaking the knobs on the radio. Yet another time, he punched the fender and put such a good-sized dent in it that he had to have his hand bandaged up the emergency room. Bob had actually taken to calling the police when Bobby kicked off, just in case anything happened so he could have it on record, because of what happened the previous time. So, and it, it worked in Bob's favour as well, like now the police did have this record, they knew what was happening, they knew if they got a call that it wasn't necessarily you know, a huge issue, but they would show up, make sure everyone's all right. So by late February, this is 2004, Father Ed enlists a Father Mike Salvania, who, while not being an exorcist, is a lot more experienced in, in his deliverance work. And like, he's basically the go-to guy for the diocese to, like, he would be the one to, who would go and examine these situations to get the information to present to the bishop to go to the Vatican if it ever came to that. Also, a close friend of Bob's called Kerry, who is like an uncle to the kids and just like a close family friend, he decides when Bob tells him 
what's going on at the house he's he's like a non-believer he's like okay i gotta check this shit out and bob's description of him is like a an uncle book type character what's an uncle book remember that movie with john candy we watched it oh shit yeah yeah something weird has happened right now the computer fucked up and so we've had to record this again it's like someone doesn't fucking want us to record this story today anyway Bob described him as an Uncle Buck type character and when he came to the house for the first time after hearing what was going on there he said in a perfect Dr. Evil voice are you saying this house is evil? Complete with the little pinky finger and all. (laughs) Father Ed's health had also been suffering ever since he got involved with the family and he was in a really bad car crash and stuff like that and Bob kind of just points out that you know entities demons whatever have this effect on people but also father ed was quite an elderly man so i'm not going to say either way what it was but father mike definitely at this point like takes over he has the lead being the more experienced priest as well and they had made these masses a fairly common occurrence in the house and bob truly believed that now this was a war with the entity and whatever length of time it would take he would have little battles and these masses were like his idea of engaging in battles or whatever like these were weapons for him now like i mentioned earlier jessica and colin had moved out to live with jessica's fiance just to get away from like the whole negative energy not even necessarily the paranormal thing but like all the constant fights and stuff like that she didn't want colin around it but they got married in may of 2004 and they moved back into the apartment to like you know get like get set up and try and save for a house or whatever they're just a nice little family living up in the corner and according to bob all around the time of the wedding all the activity in the house had like totally quietened down but i'm thinking like maybe they were all just a little bit distracted and like nobody noticed nobody was paying attention to yeah. the entity so maybe it just wasn't reacting you know yeah it's likely and they also believe that the third floor was like a a kind of a safe zone Mm. but they still had father ed come in and bless it just to be sure like switzerland yeah basically (laughs) and this is what happened on the very first night that jessica and her husband moved into the house moved back into the house later that night my son-in-law was walking up the steps and stopped to look in on colin who had been put who had been put to bed about an hour earlier The room was dark but light was shining in the window from the moon outside. To his surprise, he saw the back of a figure standing at the bed bent over the sleeping little boy. Naturally, thinking that it was Jessica, he said, What are you doing in here with the light off? When the figure did not turn around but moved into the wall that led to the crawl space and disappeared. Tom followed quickly to see who it was and then stood there, mystified beside the bed, wondering what he had just seen so bob believes this to be a threat like an out and out showing of the entity being a threat to colin and i also feel the same way and like we've already said this (laughs) to each other at least so people seeing shadows over their babies is like such a common occurrence that there's no way they're being caught off guard like it has to be an intentional thing in my opinion for the darker entities it's just their way of showing this is what i can do yeah look how close i am to your baby yeah like you know it's just a violation of 
I can do more things, but I'm just going to stand here next to this baby. Yeah. Why you look at me, do it. You can imagine whatever else. Yeah. The following Saturday, Tom, Jessica's husband, has gone away for the weekend and Jessica experiences sleep paralysis for the first time in years. And while she is, like, in sleep paralysis, I guess, she sees a black cloaked figure standing at the end of the bed. This is when she tells her parents that this used to happen to her all the time when she was younger. The next morning when the family come back from church, they find that one of the bathroom doors is locked. Just locked, no explanation, no nothing. It's just another thing to add to the like list of really common annoyances. So that Monday, Colin is now sleeping in the same bed as Jessica and Tom, the husband, because, you know, they got scared. So Bob decides that he's going to go up there and he's going to read scripture to it, like to Colin's empty room, which is what he has been doing. Like, this is how he has reacted anytime anything has happened. But now Father Mike has said, like, well, if you're going to do this, read these specific verses or whatever. So Bob says, I understood this to be the most unbearable words for evil spirits to hear spoken aloud. Father Mike had told me that it apparently drives them crazy and I was more than happy to accommodate. I continued with similar prayers until well after midnight and eventually lay down on a cot and began to pray the rosary. Knowing that I would probably doze off, I set an alarm clock for 2am. When it went off, I awoke to find that the rosary beads were missing. I found them on the floor and discovered that the links had been pushed together in a series of four figure eights. The links were not bent or broken, but were perfectly linked together as if a jeweler had done it. He goes, he continues on his fucking um, rampage of reading the Bible at the entity after this. And when I got drowsy, I set the alarm for 3.30 a.m. and went back to the cot and fell asleep. I was then startled awake by a loud pounding on the wall directly behind my head coming from the crawl space. This area was behind the wall and was also used for storage through a small access door. As I got up, I continued to hear some movement in the space. I removed the door into the area and once again began to read the Bible in a loud, very strong voice. I believe that I was getting to the thing and would simply keep poking at it. You think that I would have been terrified at this point and to be truthful, a part of me was but I drew such strength from the words that I was reading that it seemed as if I were firing a spiritual machine gun into the crawl space. But truly, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I was flying by the seat of my pants. The next time I awoke, it was almost daylight and I immediately felt an irritation on the right side of my neck. I probed the area with my finger and it hurt. I then went downstairs to the bathroom in our bedroom and looked in the mirror to see three long, deep scratches on my neck that started right below my ear and continued down my neck underneath the shirt I was wearing, which was buttoned. These three scratches were very pronounced and looked like a cat had clawed me. There was no blood, but the area was red and inflamed. Also, what he ended up doing was during the day, he would leave a radio in the crawl space playing like religious am or whatever fucking radio so yeah that was a 
a longer section that I just read out, but there's a couple of interesting points that it covers. So, like I was saying, the way he's purely viewing this as a war between him and this entity, and like he's even considered like his Bible verses or prayers, or whatever, as a machine gun. Um, which is, you know, it's a bit extreme of a metaphor, but I get it, I suppose. And this is also the first time, I think, that we see the, of the entity physically marking any of them. And, like, it, we've all had those, or certainly I've had those marks. Like, you know, you don't know where they came from. They're, like, super fine. There's no blood, no nothing. So we kept this up for three days, if I haven't already mentioned that. I might have. And during these the days while he was at work... Lisa would be at home on her own and she would hear the entity moving around, banging things upstairs constantly as if it was throwing a temper tantrum to the point where she actually thought like somebody had broken in and was up there. She'd call Bob afraid and Bob would be like, ha ha ha, no, it's just working. Like you know? <laughs> That's so strange though because why wouldn't it would rather stay contained in that room being and like choose to be annoyed by these verses instead of going outside of the room and causing ruckus somewhere Elsewhere. else. Well, Lisa would just hear it on the second floor of the house. Yeah, but still, I mean, I'm pretty sure it can travel anywhere. No, no, no. Like the, this room where Bob was was the third floor. Yeah. Lisa would be on the first floor hearing it on the second floor going all over. Uh-huh. So it wasn't just contained to that one oh. room. You know what I mean? Like it had free reign at the house. Yeah. But anytime they felt like they had it isolated in one room, they would like attack in there. Mm. Also, this is the f- this is one of the first mentions, I think, of the rosary beads actually being fucked with, right? Mm. So Bob says like the links of the rosary beads would be put together as if uh, like a jeweler had done it. And he would spend the next day or any time this happened, because I do think it happened like almost every day over the course of the next like year or two. He would have to separate them with a needle nose pliers, take them all apart, put them back together. This thing would just do it like in an instant. Like you would look away, you'd look back and it would be perfectly in figure of eights or in little circles. And it was it like it obviously makes sense when I read it, but I didn't think of it at the time. It's to stop him from being able to physically pray the rosary. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? Because, oh, now it's a fucking joint and it's tied together, whatever. Yeah. I wonder, or maybe, the, I mean, I guess they didn't have, like, eBay. Well, they had eBay back then. If you just didn't buy, like, a box of rosaries. Yeah, like, wholesale rosaries. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if I mentioned it further down in my notes, but one of his rosaries in particular had come from, like, was it Medjugorje or... Somewhere special, basically. Yeah, somewhere where, like the blessed virgin had shown up to a bunch mm. of kids in a field or something mm-hmm. and it was happening so much and so badly to these ones in particular like his mom had given them to him i remember his mom had died that a priest ended up telling him don't use these anymore bury them in your mom's gravesite and forget about them yeah weird i don't know why but it was like it had a, a particular attachment to this one set of rosary beads in particular like I said, this takes place over like a number of years. But by June 2004, Bob calls his good friend, the mayor, who was able to contact the bishop directly 
and the bishop gives him a number for his right-hand man, Father Ron Lenguin. Like Penguin, or like <laughs> you said, Linguini without the E. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Father Ron. And this priest is mysterious as fuck. He will only communicate over the phone. And Father Mike gets kind of uppity over this because he's like, oh, who's this guy coming in, stepping on my toes? And he doesn't like him. It's kind of like how police are because it's like they want to get the caller. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Father Ron ended up calling Bob every night. And he would just, like some nights it would just be to check in, say like, oh, how are you feeling today? How is everything in the house? Other nights he would have very specific instructions. And this man never once set foot in Bob's house. Still to this day, hasn't stepped foot in this house. And he would just turn around and describe everything like perfectly down to a T. And the longer like their relationship went on, like the better these visions became or well let's call them visions right so here's an excerpt from the first phone call between ron and bob and i'm not gonna do funny voices because we just don't have time for that (laughs) (laughs) so this is ron has there been a lot of turmoil and spiritual activity in one particular room on the second floor father ron asked me this room is at the top of the steps and to the left Yes, there has. I was stunned. How could he know this? It's my son's room. I told him we had sensed the problem with it going back to the initial blessing of the house in in 1988 when Bobby wouldn't let the priest enter it. Remember Bobby was only like two and he threw a hissy fit so they Uh just said fuck it. So Father Ron says, You need to go out right now and buy gold crosses for everyone in the family to wear around their necks. Also... Buy a new container of salt and go through the house, room by room, throwing a pinch of salt in every corner, including the entrances. As you do this, repeat, you are to leave this house, leave my family alone, and go back to where you came from. After you're finished, dispose of the rest of the salt somewhere away from the property. Is there a place in the corner of the backyard where a large tree once stood? He asked me. Yes. There were two trees removed by the previous owners. Bless these two spots as well, he instructed. I don't know why, but there is something significant about one of these old trees. That's insane. And the man's never stepped foot in his house. Never. Right. Doesn't even, like up until this point, didn't know anything about the case or anything. Yeah, and this was before the time of like vloggers that are like vlogging. Oh, tour of my house. You know, and so how the fuck did he know? Exactly. And I mean, like I said, he doesn't know anything about the case, but really there was no case even at this point. Yeah. Other than Mike and Ed, the priests coming and saying blessings like every other week. Yeah. Or wherever they could. So that's a perfect example as well of these really specific instructions and descriptions. So Bob does what he says and he goes out and gets crosses for everybody like the next day. But... Bobby. Oh, well, he said right now, not the next day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he used to call it like 11 o'clock at night, though. So I think he's just being like a dramatic priest. Uh. <laughs> you know how priests are. <laughs> dramatic bastards. <laughs> Bobby's cross didn't want to stay in place. Even though the chain was small enough that it couldn't fit over his head, it consistently came off while he slept. When he woke up in the morning, the cross and chain would be on the floor. 
One morning it was nowhere to be found, and he and I finally discovered it between the mattress and box spring. Bobby became more and more uneasy because each time we found the cross, the clasp was still closed. A few days later, we found the cross both removed and folded in half upon itself, as if it had been placed in a vice and bent with pliers. With this last incident, we belatedly decided to move Bobby out of the blue room. And I'll say it again. He (laughs) needs to get fucking moved out that house. Yeah, seriously. And a couple of times Bob mentions like in this book, you know, oh, people always ask me, why didn't I move out of the house and this and that, blah, blah, blah. But he's seeing this battle or war with the entity the same way as he looked at his political career and stuff Mm. like that. He's like, I'm not stepping down. This is me. I'm here to do this job. Like he really sees like God has put him here for this sole purpose oh yeah and the other thing about father ron anytime bob had any questions like well why do i need to go and buy salt or you know or how do you know this or what if i did this all father ron would say is i'll get back to you on that and then the next day he would call and have the answers yeah so turns out bob was actually a former intelligence officer with the army yeah now he might have mentioned that earlier on i definitely didn't i think i just skipped over that bit (laughs) when i was doing my notes but it came in really handy here because he decides he's finally going to get the history of the house which when i was reading this i was like thank god like this is all i wanted to fucking know so he finds out the name of the building company that built the uh that actually built that house in like 1909 and when he looks up the name he finds out that it's actually still an active company like now they've moved on to you know commercial product projects and stuff like that so he calls the guy and he just says like oh do you happen to know anything about this and the guy's like oh come on down to the office and i'll see if we can do whatever bob walks into the office and here's a picture on the wall of this guy's granddad and his crew standing outside bob's house that's so bizarre yeah they had built how many hundreds thousands of buildings but throughout the years but that's the one that's the one so there was like another little link back to the house synchronicities yes synchronicities yeah so this happened like or th- this photo was taken sometime in 1909 and that's when the house was built between 09 and 1910 and it was Preston and Louise Malik who had borrowed $10,000 from a John Wagner that's two hundred eighty-six thousand two hundred thirty-five dollars and sixteen cents today. Love today money ask. conversions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So Preston Malik was like, you know, obviously well-to-do back in the day, and John Wagner was even more well-to-do, seeing as he was able to borrow the money off him. But when Preston Malik retired in the nineteen thirties, it was like the middle of the Great Depression, and he ended up having to give the house back to John Wagner's widow which apparently caused quite the scandal in the community. And the house sat empty until 1941 when Wagner's son moved in with his family and they lived there until 1979 when the McHenrys bought it. Okay. Now, Bob was also able to track down the great, the granddaughter of Mr. Wagner, who was around 10, I believe, when she moved into the house. She was the one who moved in with her dad. And... When Bob met up with her, he said, like, she's still 
you know, came from money. She was a, quite a well-to-do elderly woman. And when he asked her, had she ever experienced anything strange in the house? She told Bob, oh, yes, many times. Oh. <laughs> she described that not long after her family moved in, they had a housewarming party for a number of their friends and all were gathered in the large expanse of the first floor. Later in the evening, all of a sudden, everyone heard a terrible racket coming from the second floor, slamming doors, pounding on the walls, and furniture moving about. Her father and several other men rushed to the second floor, expecting to confront an intruder, but to their surprise they found no one. The whole company of guests then proceeded to search the second and third floors, expecting to find someone hiding in the closet or under a bed, but no one was there. She goes on to say, There was a particular bedroom on the second floor at the top of the steps that we would not use as a bedroom. It was a sitting room only. My mother kept a blue vase in this room that was her prized possession. She told us that we had to learn to live with this activity. Also, our dog seemed to be able to sense the presence of a spirit and would go from room to room apparently looking for it. So that room at the top of the steps is the blue room. Mm. So even back then, this was in what, what did I say, 1941? I think it's interesting that she decided to put a blue vase in it. Well, <laughs> th- I did think that was odd. I was like, oh, maybe the room got its name from the vase. And then I was like, the room was probably already blue. And this lady just thought, this blue vase, yeah, this blue vase goes perfectly with it. So Yeah. <laughs> So that's from 1941, and it's still the same experiences that Lisa was experiencing, or and the rest of them, yeah, in 2004. So this whole time, Bob is still dealing with all this as if it's just like another daily chore, another project, another task that needed to be like checked off the list. But the physical attacks had progressed. David, who for the most part was the least affected of the whole family, occasionally woke up with long scratches on his chest. Bobby received really nasty puncture wounds on his stomach, which the doctor said actually looked like a dog bite. Yeah, they had to take him to the doctor to get looked at. Whoa. Lisa also woke up one morning with similar puncture wounds, only less severe, and just on her left breast. Bob was being scratched, just like David, only his cases were almost nightly. He would wake up almost every day with these, you know scratches all over him but the entity seemed to have shifted his focus bobby no longer seemed to be the center of his like mental draining for want of a better word or better phrase for the most part bobby was actually pretty chill by now and i'm also putting this down to the fact that he had been on his meds for a good like few months if not even a couple of years by now and that's how long these meds sometimes take to actually take effect you know Charlie, however, had started to suffer from severe depression and his anxiety was worse than ever. He was now self-harming and had even like started contemplating suicide. Wasn't Bobby self-harming too? Bobby was, yeah. At the beginning? At the beginning and for uh, like a while, I think. Remember, they uh, had to call the hot, the ambulance and offer him one night. Oh, yeah. But yeah. now Charlie is showing like almost the exact same fucking symptoms like and they would find his journals where he would like have pre-written suicide notes oh, and stuff yeah it was like nasty nasty stuff poor baby he also talks of experiencing paralyzing dreams 
not necessarily sleep paralysis though and i only marked this down because i thought like such an odd i mean if it's a dream it's a dream whatever but it was just it was interesting as he described it i wake up and i'm walking to the bathroom and all of a sudden i freeze a foot off the ground i tried to scream but my lips are moving with nothing coming through them i'm trying to fight it i can't breathe or move i'm paralyzed i just i had to mention that because i thought like this was a consistent dream as well yeah so i thought that was interesting Mm. anyway speaking of weird dreams i had a weird dream the other day that i no longer had a leg and all i had left was pvc pipe for a makeshift leg and that's what i got from the hospital really yeah that's hilarious but the strange thing was is the way that happened is that they had to do surgery from like my knee down to my foot and what they did is they just sliced it down the middle and they just literally peeled my leg away like the skin yeah away from i guess my skeleton but the crazy thing is i never had a skeleton in that leg it was only pvc pipe oh so they just removed your skin yeah kind of like i don't know they just peeled it away like just one big slab of that makes perfect sense and (laughs) did you have a foot at the end of it oh and i and they also told me they're like oh we have to put a catheter on you and my catheter kept falling out and i kept having to put in my catheter by myself but the thing is i don't know what a catheter is (laughs) so in my dream a catheter was just a capri son (laughs) a a suction cup to my lady bits wow yeah weird i can can just picture you walking with like a step step yeah (laughs) i had pvc pipe for a skeleton (laughs) crazy right on (laughs) well anyway (laughs) bob had arranged some time for a men's spiritual retreat for men mm. at the monastery for men for men for men for a weekend a weekend away for the boys for the men mm. which i wait you said this was for men yeah only for men okay no ladies allowed just men being men with their man bits <laughs> <laughs> so he had organized it at the monastery of the of men <laughs> the monastery of men no but the the monastery where father ed and father mike came from mm. it was something to do with like the politics or some shit i don't know Biz- local businessmen or well, something. i mean technically it was a monastery for men because they were segregated right monasteries are for men nunneries are for ladies yeah yeah yeah. so they spent the weekend at the monastery and when he arrives home on sunday he's unpacking his bag he puts his rosary beads on the pillow and goes into his ensuite to do whatever, put away his stuff. And when he walks back into the room, the rosary beads are untouched, but the crucifix that were atta- that was attached to it looks as though it has been chewed. Like a toothpick, he said. Like he could actually see... Teeth marks. Teeth marks in the metal. So Bob takes this like assault on the rosary beads as the demon like upping the ante for him getting father ron involved it's as if he knows that bob is going out of his way and like strengthening his arsenal say if we're going to keep with this metaphor yeah 
During one of their phone calls, Father Ron tells Bob that there is a mirror in the hallway upstairs facing the bathroom door that needs to be covered and other instructions (laughs) apparently. Um, So he goes on to describe to Bob that there is another house down the street and if he looks to his left while standing on his porch, he should see it. He said, this house is connected to yours. Oh, that's that house. That's that from house. his childhood. There was a man who once owned it who did evil things in your house. He was responsible for a tremendous amount of blood and more deaths than could be counted. I see him with white gloves, a hat, and a cane with a manservant who accompanied him. The hat, gloves, and cane were always placed in the closet under the steps when he would visit your house, and the three rooms that stood out most as being associated with the blood were the bathroom the blue room and the furnace room he goes on there's like a little bit more than this but i'm paraphrasing she wasn't married but had been sent there by a friend an older man a politician she was put in a car and taken to the hospital i see another woman screaming in pain and a knocked over pan filled with blood so these are pretty ominous uh, (laughs) messages from father ron this particular evening this is where local legend and hearsay come into the story a little bit. And Bob was familiar with this, but he didn't realize that it was associated with, like, the house down the street and his house. So the story goes that Dr. M, whose name is on the internet, but for these purposes, I'm just going to keep with the name Dr. M. That's the name from the book. He started a pediatric practice in 1915 which eventually became known as the hospital because everyone ended up going there and it was like there was no major hospital for miles around anyway he got involved with the Maliks who remember owned the house first when a young member of the family or possibly a serving girl got pregnant he sort of did the family a favor and aborted the child this is all just father ron's thing we have no way to actually prove this soon after this because of the size of the house and its convenient placement it became a secret abortion clinic so we don't know whether there was like some possible blackmail involved or anything but the girls could be driven around the back of the house so no one could see them actually you know they could do it secretly like nobody would see them leaving coming or going and dr m would set up in the blue room that was his I guess, operating theater, for want of a better word, or whatever. And he would use the bathroom directly across, naturally, to clean up in. That that kind of reminds me of, like, American Horror Story, the murder house season. Yes, very similar. So, the remains of these aborted fetuses would then be disposed of in the furnace room downstairs before the ashes were buried where Bob's rosebush is now. Father Ron was very clear when he said these roses should never enter the house. So luckily enough, he had a couple of rose bushes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The story does kind of make sense, though. Like when you think about the Malik's like financial situation, like they lost that house in the 30s. A secret abortion clinic, I'm sure, brought in quite a few bob like at the time. Yeah. A few quid. Yeah, good few quid. (laughs) But this Dr. M was supposed to be just a horrible, horrible man who didn't care about like cleanliness or hygiene. And according to the old funeral director's son, who used to have to go to Dr. M's house to get 
uh, death certificate signed for his dad. He was a very rough and profane old man who liked to drink and always smelled of it. He walked with a limp and always wore a black hat, white gloves and carried a cane. So this guy had to deal with him directly. And I think later on we find out as well, like he was like not just rough in his demeanor, like he was physically rough when he was with patients as well. Oh. Yeah, just like so almost the- like a Joseph Mengel kind of Mengele. Mengele. Yeah. So like, um, did he mention any of like his patients dying on his table? Well, he had mentioned the girl in white just before and also how many fetuses were disposed of like there's no record obviously because all this was on the mm-hmm. in secret but it's to be assumed uh. that there was an awful lot of bloodshed in the house after this father ron hits bob raw telling him that this is going to be a long meaty battle he hit him you could say bareback bareback yes absolutely <laughs> no Smithy. spit or nothing yeah. i'm not going back bareback in that <laughs> So one night as Bob goes to close, this is just a random, there will be like a few of these kind of random isolated events, like mm. uh, like the bathroom door locking, although that does happen again. Anyway, this one particular night, Bob goes to close the bedroom window in his like main bedroom where him and Lisa sleep. And he goes to close it and it won't close. And so he looks and he pulls out what looks like an old musket ball covered in blood. Like, that's the only thing he can kind of think of. I guess it maybe looked like a ball bearing or something. Yeah. Um, But it was in the track of the window, stopping it from closing. That makes zero sense. Yeah, yeah. right. So anyway, he just thought it... Uh, he just kind of, like, forgot about it or whatever. It was like, how fucking random. And this is a really weird one-off, like I said. But I do have a theory that I'm going to get back to later on. Because I don't want to spoil it. So all that just happened in the last month, like Father Ron and stuff. So now it's July 2004. Like I said, I tried to keep a timeline in this more almost for my own uh, sanity when I was putting it together. Under Father Ron's instructions, they decide to do a temporary cleanse in the house. Now, to me, this sounds like a big old ritual because what they had to do was have a priest stand outside the house at every corner and then they had his friend Kerry standing in the middle of the front garden like holding a cross or something and then they all said the same prayers in unison after Bob had been in there on his own in the house telling the entity what was about to happen so leading up to this well that sounds like a ritual (laughs) for sure yeah big time and the neighbors must have had like a field day the next (laughs) day and so the way the house is situated you kind of can't see an awful lot from the main road Mm. so i think they were kind of lucky like that Mm. but also they had to get i think like so it was the two priests mike and ed and then they had to like just grab anybody that they could so it was like a presbyterian and something else so they were all dressed up slightly differently as well like i'd say it looked like a priest halloween party like (laughs) (laughs) that's wild yeah um and like leading up to this event the entity is extremely active all its usual tricks fucking up rosary beads and all that the smell of sulfur is present all over the house at random times it's actually started moving around now as if it was just walking from room to room 
just mm. act in the country. I I wanted to mention since we had uh, contacted our good friend Katie. Uh, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and she she happens to be a midwife, and we asked her what uh, what is it? Uh, what and, amniotic fluid yeah, smells and, like? Yeah, because if you remember from our previous episode, Adam pointed out well from the book. Uh, the, the author of the book said that it um, smelled like piss. Yeah, like a really strong smell of piss. She debunked that because I'm sure she deals with it every day. Mm-hmm. And she said it doesn't. And sometimes it smells sweet. Yep. And also thought, what the fuck is this weirdo doing? Text me <laughs> at three in the morning <laughs> asking me what this stuff smells like. <laughs> yeah. She was like, uh, yeah, I know what that smells like, but can I ask why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Should I be alarmed? <laughs> um, anyway, initially, when they started getting this smell of sulfur or even the smell of amniotic fluid, it would disappear straight away once they said, like, in the name of Jesus Christ, fuck off or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But now it's getting harder and harder to get rid of. That's what she said. Hey, right before the ceremony, Bob was told to enter the house and be in there alone and let them entity know what was about to happen and when he was in there he heard a lot of movement on the second floor but as usual with these ceremonies the entity is more or less non-existent while it's going on so it's like he just backs off and lets them do their thing like anytime they have a mass or anything so they take this as you know a sign that they're doing good father ron's phone calls like i said are like a daily occurrence by now and his descriptions of Bob's house are getting more and more exact and impressive. One night he tells Bob that there's something evil in the upstairs living room. He doesn't know what it is, but he has to find it and call him back. So Bob goes into this room, which I think had only recently become like an upstairs living room, reading room or whatever. And he goes through the whole thing, like side tables, chest of drawers, Lisa's chest of drawers, and then eventually it turns out that when Bob was a kid, he used to collect World War One and Two artifacts, and a lot of these being Nazi-related. And when he got older, he actually realized, you know, the, like the true meaning of like these things, and he gave his collection away. He realized like how um, how fucking racist it was. Well, <laughs> yeah, how insensitive it was, even mm. like you know, which I think a lot of kids growing up think, oh, it's just like cool old war stuff and then as they become adults they're like oh wait hang on mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't just from the movies anyway he gave this collection away except for one little medal which was hidden in his chest of drawers completely forgotten about he finds it and he calls father ron back and he told him what it was and ron was like that's it that's the evil thing that i was sensing put it in a box with a wooden cross on it so he does he then says that there is a beacon of positive energy also there's a vase upstairs and he describes it and bob was like oh shit that's the vase that my mom gave me or had been passed down to him from his mom so he said fill it with fresh flowers and this will like let it shine basically like you know just is a really good representation of positivity so bob goes out to the garden and he gets his roses not from (laughs) the fetus ash rose bush but from another part of the garden and he fills it with roses you know i was watching something the other day about like different ways of 
protecting yourself yeah you know like spiritually and one of the things that this person had mentioned in passing was there's a reason why people of like a spiritual inclination or whatever have a lot of plants in their house Mm. because certain plants can't they basically plants serve as your first line of defense if anything is um headed your way you know if something somebody unintentionally or intentionally hurls something at you your home or basically your kin that's your first line of defense and if you see that some plants are starting to die and you didn't change anything about the upkeep then that's how it'll that's how it's their way of alerting you it's like a sign it's a sign yeah that something's up and that you should probably do like some sort of cleansing or banishment right on yeah cool right yeah she's like you ever notice why (laughs) how like i guess witches or spiritualists have tons of plants that's why right on so after you know telling bob about the vase and the flowers and stuff he then tells him that the ritual did work the one with the four priests but not to get too cocky basically the entity is just recovering and he will strike back soon and usually like or at least some of the time like father ron would be like he's gonna take four days off he's gonna be back on saturday or you know what i mean he could like almost pinpoint it the following saturday night bob and lisa come home around 11 30 p.m and bob is standing in the foyer when a loud pop goes off right by his ear he said it sounded like a light bulb breaking or something and he's like looking around trying to see what the fuck just happened like looking for you know was there plaster falling from the ceiling or something lisa hears it too she comes running back in thinking that he was after knocking something over but that was it there was no nothing before nothing after no mess it was just the this entity just being like i'm here like i'm still here don't Uh, forget about me again that's sort of like very parallel universe-ish that sound sound. of going in and out because i remember the exorcism of ronald doe yeah or something uh roland doe roland doe i can't remember my own story um when the the demon left it was the same sound it was a bang yeah and then it was gone like that he just mentioned it and i figured again it was same like with the cd and then yeah and then the cd too isn't that crazy yeah uh, no no like it escapes to its little parallel dimension wherever it's going yeah and then it comes back Mm mm-hmm so like i said father ron or sorry father mike is still like kind of salty over father ron's like involvement and he's convinced that ron is either a christian mystic or is working very closely with one and so he goes to get his own christian mystic it sounds to me like some sort of nordic metal christian genre or something <laughs> yeah it does why is he gonna get his own if basically he already has one in ron i think he just wants like affirmation or something like that you know what i mean he wants to be like where's this guy getting this information from why won't he come to the house this kind of thing oh. and again like he was running the show until ron showed up oh so i think it's just like oh you're saying mike got one yeah mike got oh one. i thought you said bob sorry oh no no sorry mike did um and christian mystic is basically a psychic or a medium or something Mm -hmm. but they really have to reinforce the fact that it's a strong christian person Mm. none of these devil pagans or anything (laughs) 
so this lady tells Mike and Bob, I think she actually goes to the house, but she tells them anyway that there is very old sin still present in the house. Adultery, violence, hatred, rape, seances, spirit channeling and deceit. This is the list that she picks up. So she's much more vague than uh, Ron with his instructions and stuff. But, you know, kind of just added to it. So Bob like gears up his assault. Every night he says the rosary aloud in the blue room. He burns candles and incense. And also in the blue room, he sets up a TV and DVD player and plays The Passion of the Christ on a loop 24-7 for the next seven months. That's enough to drive everyone crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he admits that he can like recite this movie line for line. <laughs> I bet. The entity soon learned how to turn off both the DVD player and what? the TV. <laughs> yeah, I think he would walk in. Now, maybe it was the kids. <laughs> Just, I don't know. That's wild. But it got to the state. Like, this, the attacks were becoming so, just, like, regular and, like, part of their day that, like, when Lisa was attacked in the house now, when she was on her own, she would just say, like, ah, oh, go watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Why don't you go watch the movie? Yeah, yeah. Leave me alone. We set up that lovely TV. <laughs> so it seemed to work, though, because the entity, like, moved out of the blue room. Yeah. And into the upstairs living room, which was, like, down the hall, I guess. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob, like, noticed that this obviously worked. Yeah. And now he spent, like, hours every night. He would go into this upstairs living room reading scripture and expelling it from the room sometimes he'd be up there and like because this was all as well solely based on the smell of sulfur and like garbage or whatever so sometimes he'd be in there for an hour and then the smell would just suddenly vanish other times it would linger all night long like sometimes it would even get stronger when he went in there so there was nights where he would win and there was nights where he would give up and the entity would win but when I say, like, this man spent so much of his time doing this, it's ridiculous. Eventually, they set up another TV and DVD player in that room that would also play The Passion of the Christ. And they would only ever use it for their nightly battles. So as far as they were concerned, the blue room and this living room are the entities now. Around this time, too, one day when Charlie was home after school alone in his room, his door was locked from the outside. So he was just sitting in his room chilling and his door was locked. The old wooden doors have manual turn bolt locks on the inside that can only be locked from the outside with a key. Since they all took old skeleton keys, um, they only had keys for one or two of the rooms. Like They were the original doors. Mm. And this bedroom wasn't one of them. He eventually got out through a window that leads onto the roof of the sun porch. Uh, so I was just like what the fuck this thing is literally could be the smallest thing but he's still fucking with them yeah and it was just another case of random ass door being locked but other than this it seemed like the entity wasn't necessarily running out of steam but that the family were just kind of over it you know it wasn't yeah. giving them that like same well or shock factor anymore they were just indifferent to it maybe yeah so September 8th 2004 they hold a mass in the blue room 
I think it was the first time they specifically held it in the blue room. And it went really well. And towards the end, the room suddenly was filled with this like lovely floral scent. Hmm. Yeah, and everyone was like, yay, we fucking, we did it, you know? Yeah. And so they go out of the blue room and into the living room. And there's that sulfur smell. Mm. But they all pray together and it goes away and they're all like, you know, woo, Jesus, whatever. Yeah. As soon as the priests leave the house, it comes back. And the very next day, Lisa finds drops of liquid going from Charlie's room to the living room, which she claims smells like, smelled like birth fluid or amniotic fluid. Later that same day, she finds a notebook belonging to Charlie hidden under his mattress. In this notebook was like, you know, pre-written suicide notes and all like this kind of stuff. So Father Ron, again, amazes Bob in, in his phone call one night. He says, there's a door in the wall of his sunroom, right? That was like plastered over years ago during renovations or something. But this was the specific door where Dr. M's patients used to come in through. And Bob had also had like re-renovated and uncovered this door years previous and just thought nothing of it. He was just like, oh, it's a door and blocked it back up again. So it was something so specific that Bob was able to say, how the fuck does this man know literally what's in the walls of his house? And anyway, they call it the door of sorrows and he would go down and bless it. Ron also tells Bob that Bobby has been affected so badly by all of this because remember when he was a baby, he was born blue. Mm. So Ron out of nowhere just pulls this information and said that he was so close to the other side when he was born like he was so close to not being born basically that this is why the entity he is so easily affected by the entity jessica is pregnant again at this stage with her second child and when she's in the house she starts getting stabbing pains in her stomach she rushes to the hospital but as soon as she gets in the car the pain goes away so naturally she goes to the hospital anyway and the doctors are like i think they were not rude to her but like really dismissive being like look you're just a pregnant woman you're hysteric you're fine go home Mm. only ever in the house would she get these pains now the baby was born fine and all that as far as i know and again there was no paranormal activity on the third floor ever since they had moved back in and bob did those three days vigil or whatever up there so september 18th 10 days after the mass in the blue room it's saturday morning and Bob and Lisa are having coffee in the kitchen after mass at the convent. David is sitting watching TV in the sitting room. He is still, by the way, like the least affected person. Very little has actually happened to him other than the odd scratch or two. But from where he's sitting watching the TV, he has a perfect view of Bob and Lisa in the kitchen. All of a sudden, he comes into the kitchen and he asks, where did that person go and who was it? What person, they ask. I just saw someone at the kitchen door wearing a black robe or a dress, he told me. What did they look like? I asked. It had jet black hair down to its shoulders, so I couldn't see the face. It walked into the doorway of the kitchen and then turned, walked over toward where you and mom were sitting, and so I lost sight of it. I came in to see who it was. Now, he wasn't scared or upset or anything. He genuinely thought this was like some fucking maybe one of Bobby or Charlie's goth friends I don't know but he is the only person that has ever seen it so clearly as that so I thought it was odd that it presented itself like that yeah so now it's October 2004 
they had actually taken all the furniture out of the upstairs living room by now because like the smell and stuff would be so overpowering that they could not like there was just no point in using it anymore so it was not theirs one evening um jessica calls down to the the main house i guess and she says look i'm sending colin down to you like will you look after him for a little while and lisa says like yeah yeah sure and bob's like watching tv only kind of half paying attention to what's going on about a minute later i heard what sounded like the loud gasps of a child who was drowning the television was on but i still heard the sounds all the way from the front of the house i immediately ran to the steps and up to the second floor balcony landing to find little colin standing in front of the blue room shaking like a leaf and gasping for air monster monster will get me he panted as he pointed to the blue room his face was a mask of fright eyes bulging out of their sockets in a frozen stare his mouth was wide open as if he was trying to scream but couldn't because of his developmental issues he could not yet verbalize fully what had occurred at the time bob wrote this book colin was actually 12 and still wouldn't walk up to the second floor by himself and he's not sure what actually happened he just vaguely recalls the black monster that lunged out of the room at him. That's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> fucking petrifying. But this really affected Bob because Colin was his you know, little grandson, like his, his baby boy or whatever. His first one. Yeah. Bob felt like the entity had really gotten one over on him mm. with this. And he kind of lost it a little bit for a while. So he decides it's time to mute, move Jessica, Colin, Tom and the new baby if it had been born yet i'm not sure out of the apartment and he rents them a little townhouse somewhere else because they're fucking loaded as well apparently (laughs) so the sulfur smell was becoming so strong that it was literally rendering rooms unusable lisa said that the main bathroom smelled so strongly of amniotic fluid that she couldn't even go in there anymore and the smell was starting to follow her around the house same as the sulfur smell so weird but when this was happening it was only lisa and jessica still that could smell this strange puddles were now a daily occurrence sometimes it just looked like rusty orange water and sometimes it was blood like full-on blood which i thought the rusty orange water was like no someone had cleaned a, a rag that they had used to clean blood or something i have a question okay did jessica smell this before she got pregnant that i don't know i had thought of that actually as well yeah right because i'm wondering if they smell that because they've given birth and essentially otherwise they wouldn't know what the smell was well not just that but i mean because no one else smelled it right yeah literally oh wait you said bob smelled it no no no, bob didn't smell it they're the only two that smelled it they're the only two that gave well they're the only two women and they're the only two who have given birth yeah i know but i wonder if jessica would have ever smelled it has she not given birth i wonder if there's a correlation between that because i mean when you're birthing a baby that's like when someone passes away there's a transition there yeah you know honestly i don't know but like just a thought yeah 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 these puddles like with the strange substances in it again bob couldn't smell anything from the puddles whereas lisa 
said that the smell specifically from the fluid or blood or whatever was so overpowering that it would make her nauseous like and lisa also started feeling phantom pains at this point so she would get like like really bad pains in her arm and neck her right arm and she said this pain is the same as i felt that time i fell down the stairs just after we moved in remember she asked me and jessica as we sat at the kitchen table one night while jessica was visiting my legs were swept out from under me as i was coming down the steps as if someone had just pushed me i slid down the steps to the landing and twisted my arm and hurt my back and neck lisa rubbed her arm where it hurt i looked up to see who had pushed me but of course there was no one there don't you remember mom that i felt exactly the same way when i was pregnant with colin jessica reminded her lisa nodded i fell down the steps out of nowhere my feet got swept out from under me under me thankfully i landed on my rear and not my back like you so again that's the two ladies have been yeah attacked and jessica specifically while she was pregnant so whatever it is fucking hates the ladies of this family yeah i mean and then you had mentioned before like the ang like what happened in the house had a lot to do with had to do with pregnant women or yeah basically mothers Mm -hmm. so around this time bobby had completely chilled out bob even walked in on him one night saying his prayers and he joined him total fucking turnaround yeah bob on the other hand was really starting to feel worn out like i said this whole thing with colin just like fucked him up and like one night in particular he was just feeling like fuck it like let's just sell the house and leave not tell the next family same thing but father ron like picked up on this i guess and bob comes downstairs lisa hands him the phone i keep going to say bob and linda lisa hands him the phone and it's father ron giving him like some encouraging message saying like this is your job blah 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 the entity also seems to sense this and sticks around for the entire mass the next time they they hold a mass really mocking the priests like the, the whole room was filled with this nasty scent and then after the mass they leave the room they go downstairs and then the scent appears downstairs it like follows them out the door almost bob actually makes a point of comparing it to the amityville haunting at one stage but says that what they experienced what bob and his family experienced was way worse than what the amityville than what what are the names again um uh defoe's the defoe's defeos defeos yeah then what the Defe- not <laughs> defoe yeah. is the actor oh yeah yeah <laughs> so he said that the what the defeos experienced was like nothing like what they experienced i don't know about that I mean, i'm just saying he made the point so uh. by now it's like november time and the lulls and activity seem to be becoming longer but when the entity is quiet it seems to make them even more like nervous and on edge it's like when it's not there they're waiting for it the next big thing to happen mm-hmm. the summer previous bob had been rebuilding one of the porch walls bob's a fucking hero by the way <laughs> for building in his house and all that anyway he's rebuilding the porch wall and found that when he took down the planks inside under the porch was like basically a perfectly preserved what would have been like a fruit cellar but they just did, never added a door to it and in there he finds just a wooden board with a name written on it in chalk and he said like you know do you ever pick up like a dry piece of wood and it's like super light 
probably so like it just it didn't rot or anything basically it's like perfect preserved yeah. wood and has some german name on it so but at this time though bob is like you know trying to get the, this done before the sun goes down so he puts the wood in his workshop and he's like oh i'll, I'll look it up i'll look up that name in the phone book later and forgets about it so this november evening he just randomly fucking thinks about it and he's like oh i must go down and check that out and i'll google it or something so he goes down to the basement and he finds the piece of wood lying in the doorway face down and when he picks it up it looks like something with claws had scratched all of the writing off anywhere there was chalk it had been scraped off with claw marks it was just like as if it didn't know or as as if it didn't want bob to know what the name was yeah like and like that it had been sitting there for three four months maybe more Mm -hmm. and then that night it knew that he was coming down to look for it so the same day he tells father ron about the board they find a puddle of blood in their ensuite they clean it up and they come back later to find it exactly as it was before but there was no way anybody had been in there like they were in their bedroom the whole time and like even the cleaner that they had used to spray on the floor was still beside it and it was just magic reappearing fucking blood again later they find that three of the light bulbs in a light in the living room the one that they had abandoned i think have gone out so bob goes to change them and he finds that they're full of blood or something that at least looks like blood so he puts them somewhere so he can show the priests when they come for the next mass or whatever but when he goes to retrieve them they've all been mysteriously broken and there's no sign of this fucking blood weird yeah at this point in the story bob asks for sex advice from father ron because i mean if i ever have problems with my sex life i always go to a priest (laughs) because they're the most experienced i know but ron tells him basically he says that their sex life is suffering they feel like this thing is always watching them and it just feels fucking weird they don't want to yeah they don't want to be doing it Mm -hmm. you know blood dripping on the floor and then like the shadows in the corner just whacking it yeah like so father ron tells him um having a wink yeah (laughs) but ron tells them that sex is a weapon like it's basically a sign of their unity in god's fucking eyes so he tells them like plow as much as often as possible wow and that's interesting yeah this will show the entity that he cannot break their bond Mm, you know interesting so bob was pretty happy with that he like he let lisa know lisa we We gotta gotta do it we gotta plow in the name of god plow for plow for god (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's so crazy father ron also tells bob that the entity is taking a christmas vacation what (laughs) (laughs) but when he comes back he'll be stronger than ever maybe you know, I don't he's know where he's going. He's like going to the Bahamas or something. Yeah. On Christmas vacation. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, what do devils and, do at Christmas? Anti Christmas vacation. Yeah, yeah. Him and Krampus and the guys <laughs> go away for the week. Like Um But on Christmas Eve, Bob finds out that Lisa has spent around twenty thousand dollars on a secret credit card for like credit for the everybody's Christmas presents and stuff. And she's like, oh, with everything that was going on, like I just wanted, you know, to make a really nice Christmas for everybody to forget, like this turmoil. How much? Twenty thousand dollars. Fuck. He 
fucking flips. Yeah. And he said, like, you know, because before when she almost lost she the house and stuff before, like that. Yeah. yeah. So he wants to just leave altogether. He's like, you know what? That's it. I'm out. But Father Ron tells him that it's just the entity trying to get between them. It's not Lisa's fault at all. But either way, Bob is still like fucking livid and he takes all his shit and he moves up to the apartment on the third floor mm. just to get away from everyone or no more plowing for god <laughs> yeah but he admits in the book that like this felt like the first step in actually leaving the house mm. and he knew that it was bad but he just couldn't he was so fucking angry anyway they hold another mass on the 30th of december and afterwards bob bob finds the rosary beads that were attached to the light chain in the coat closet wrapped around the light again this is so triggering to him i think this might have actually been the night when he moves up to the third floor he's like fuck it and what i thought was funny was that it's something so small but it it's such a reoccurring thing and it's like this is the entity's way of being like fuck you bitch this is my coat closet a couple of weeks later bob comes home early from work he's like not feeling well he's got the flu or something the house is empty and he walks up to the third floor and as he's coming up the stairs he sees that someone has splattered blood all over the walls and the doors upstairs it's still dripping like it's still running down the walls and he said it looks just like the way the priests would go around splashing holy water on everything like a perfect mockery that's so metal though it is pretty fucking hardcore but this is what kind of snaps him back into reality mm. he calls father ron like because first of all he just goes to wipe it off with a cloth like naturally but father ron tells him like that this stuff is that might not necessarily be blood but it is from hell more or less you know it's yeah like not to be touched by people wow so i don't know how they actually got rid of it but anyway it probably disappeared like i think that's yeah i yeah. think that is the thing with it but yeah that kind of snaps bob back into it and he's like fuck you ho I'm not losing this battle. And that's where I'm going to leave it this week. Third part next week. You're all going to be so happy when this is over. <laughs> <laughs> the story is nuts. And I promise next week is the end of it. So come back next week for round three of the Demon of Brownsville Road. And now Dulce is going to give us a delightful little palate cleanser. All right. So it's my go. <laughs> today on another another chapter of it's dulce's turn um i'm going to be talking about this freak of nature occurrence known as the man eaters of savo or the savo man eaters you ever heard of him no i'm very curious though i you've you've seen the movie that it's based on you just don't know the story like the backstory. It's very similar to the movie. So the movie I'm referring to is called The Ghost in the Darkness. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's my dad's favorite movie. So back in the day when DVD was popping, <laughs> um, that was the only DVD he ever bought. Because and he bought 18 copies. <laughs> because he loved that thing. So... Um, that's that's what I'm going to talk about today. And right a lot of you are probably like, all right, a man eater, right? Like a thing, like a thing of legend. 
you know, it might be some sort of lore from somewhere. But no, it's um, it's a recorded situation that happened in history in Africa. So my sources are The Science of Man-Eating Among Lions, Pantera Leo, with a reconstruction of the natural history of the man-eaters of Savo by Julian Kerbis, Peter Hans, and Thomas Patrick Noski. Wikipedia, The Man-Eaters of Savo and uh, Other East African Adventures, and lionlamb.us. Sounds good. Yeah. There was a huge railway project that began in 1886 in Africa that would link Uganda with the Indian Ocean at Kilindini Harbor in Mombasa, Kenya. Mombasa. I know, that's a pretty cool name. This project was led by the British, and in 1889, they started building over the Savo River in Kenya. In those days, the only route into the interior of, Af- of the African continent was on foot. And there was much in the way of agricultural goods and other wares that could not easily reach market due to the lack of transportation. So naturally, they thought, you know, railway. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, there were several camps within an eight-mile radius to accommodate for thousands of of indentured Indian laborers. At that time, India was part of the British Empire. The project was led by John Henry Patterson, who had arrived at this location right before the attacks. For the next nine months, the settlement would be terrorized by a series of attacks from two maneless lions. First of all, I had no idea male lions couldn't have manes. I thought they all did. Yeah, I've never heard of that myself, to be honest. Yeah, strange. I thought only the females. Is it like a specific breed or like some lions? No, I guess some just don't. Wow. These two lions, they would creep into the tents of these men, drag them out, and eat them. That did happen. Like what we saw in the movie essentially happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were small intervals where there would be no attacks, but when they began again, it was more intense with killings happening daily. Jesus. So it would be like a cycle, right? So like there'd be no kills and then it's like every day, every day and then taper off. Yeah. And then stop. And then it started up again, like, every day, every day, every day. That's mad, like, as if they were storing it or something. Yeah. The movie insinuates there being a cave. Yeah. Where they stayed and where they would take some parts, like, parts of the body. Yeah. And I think they did find the cave, but they're, they're like, still trying to figure out if it's, like, I guess they're, that's where they were hiding or if this was just like a cave that they happened upon or, you know, or if that was their home base. Oh, okay. You know, because like what, at the point that I was reading, they hadn't found very much. They did find human remains, but they weren't sure if that was attributed to the lions. Oh, sorry. I'm with you. You see I'm what I'm saying? You. Yeah, yeah. There would also be reports from neighboring settlements that they too were enduring similar attacks, likely from the same lions. Still, 
there were a couple of lucky escapes. So that means, you know, not, not all of the attacks were successful. One night, a lion attacked a man riding a donkey. The donkey... Oh, hey. The lion was riding a donkey or the man was riding a donkey? Like the lion rode in on the donkey to attack a man on foot. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I get it now. I had to read the sentence like, are you having a stroke? (laughs) Now I understand. (laughs) Sorry, I have to do it. Somebody out there was going (laughs) to... Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, so let me read that how you understand it. <laughs> One night, a lion attacked a man riding a don- while riding a donkey. Yeah, that's what I heard. That's what you heard? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the donkey was knocked over and the man was knocked off. The lion moved in for the kill and somehow got his claws hooked on a rope tied to some oil cans that had been around the donkey's neck. The lion couldn't immediately figure out how to unhook the rope and the oil cans were making like a huge racket. Yeah. And so the noise ended up like scaring the lion so much that it just ran off and it ended up dragging the oil cans with it. (laughs) The rider of said donkey escaped to the safety of a tree and stayed there the rest of the night. <laughs> Good for him. I really don't blame him. <laughs> Hell yeah, with like all this, like you hear all the shit that's going on and you're like, fuck that. Yeah. I'm staying in here. Staying in this here tree. Another time, one of the lions broke into a tent and was intent on carrying off the occupant who was sleeping on a mattress. Instead, somehow... The lion got hold of the mattress and pulled it out from under the man. Oh. <laughs> Soon realizing the mistake, the lion dropped the mattress and ran off. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, that was one lucky bastard, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Another time, one of the lions jumped onto a tent, like onto a tent. Yeah. Uh, containing 14 Indian laborers. The lion broke through the tent, clawing up one man's shoulder in the process somehow in all the confusion the lion grabbed a sack of rice and made off with that instead what an idiot (laughs) these lions are dumb the lion (laughs) this is what it says threw it down in disgust (laughs) a short distance away and beat a hasty retreat what is this (laughs) Rice? Oh, I hate rice. Not I'm a vegetarian. A <laughs> I like meat, Derek. <laughs> so, Patterson settled. Uh, Patterson settlement tried different strategies to keep the lions at bay. They built bonfires to scare the lions. They also built fences made out of a thorny type of tree that was indigenous to the area, but the lions would just go through it or under these fences. And the lions were like, fuck your bonfires. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The pattern of attack from these lions would be that only one would sneak in to capture a victim, but with time, like, they got confident. So they both ended up going into these tents together and taking one victim per lion. 
It was literally fucking teamwork. When they were confident of themselves, when they saw that, like, okay, we're more often getting our victim than not. So they were like, fuck it, we're going to tag team this shit. Yeah, they're like, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. So droves of workers could not help but escape the settlement as they were very afraid of being eaten, naturally. Yeah, of course. At this point, the construction of the bridge had ceased and colonial officials started to arrive by train to assess the situation because, you know, you're encroaching on potential money to be made. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so these people that grew up in the heart of England are going to come down and see what's all this nonsense about lions? Exactly. One of these officials was District Officer Mr. Whitehead. I couldn't find his whole name, but it's Mr. Whitehead. <laughs> what a horrible name. I know. I wonder if it's British, like very British. I'd love to just like pop him. So he was very close to being one of these lions lunch as he was arriving at the Savo train depot, like literally upon his arrival. Wow. He narrowly escaped getting eaten. That's insane. Like, so during the day. Yeah, they hunt any time. Fuck. So, like, yeah, they were get they got very what's the word brazen. Yeah, um, yeah. So, Mister Whitehead was in, was accompanied by an assistant named Abdullah, who was not so lucky. He ended up taking Abdullah instead. I used to work with a guy called Abdullah. Yeah, I still work with a guy. Well, his name is Abdullah. So poor El Abdullah got it. Yeah. He bit it. Or got bit. Reinforcements also arrived in the form of Indian infantrymen armed with muskets. Their mission was to hunt these lions. In the meantime, Patterson had set traps and tried to hunt them himself. He wasn't successful until December 9th, 1898, when he shot one of the lions with his rifle. This shot went through the lion's hind leg before it escaped. So he managed to hurt it only. Yeah. But it did return to stalk Patterson <laughs> as Patterson was also trying to hunt it right back. Like they were hunting each Whoa, other. Whoa, he's like, that's him. Yeah. That's the one. I'm telling you now, that's, that's him. He shot me. <laughs> so Patterson was on a platform that gave him the advantage to hunt for this lion. He had a more powerful rifle with him that night than the one that he had previously shot him with. Okay. He managed to shoot it again through the shoulder. The bullet traveled to the lion's heart and he was found dead the next morning. So one lion down. Right. This first lion was nine feet from nose to the tip of the tail. That's a fucking monster. Patterson wrote in his book, it took eight men to carry the carcass back to the camp. Jesus. Yeah. Like, have you ever stood on the top of a nine-foot ladder? No. It's a, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're looking down, it's a long way down. Yeah. So, 20 days later, the second lion was killed, but it took six shots on different days with three different guns to bring this one down. Jesus. Yeah, he was really hard to kill. (laughs) (laughs) 
The first shot came from Patterson, who was on top of a scaffolding that had a dead goat near it. So they were using it as bait. You know, very strategical like. Yeah, yeah. The next two shots at the lion was 11 days later as it was stalking Patterson. And then it fled after that. Like it was still going. The next day, Patterson and a small group found the lion and Patterson shot at it three more times, twice in the chest and once in the head. According to Patterson, it was still trying to go for him as he was dying. Wow. Yeah. These things sound like actual monsters, though. That or these rifles suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that could be it, too, I guess. It's actually just paintball guns. (laughs) just bb guns yeah after the lions were done in the laborers came back to finish the bridge in february 1899 the construction of this railroad remains one of the great and one of the greatest engineering feats of the late 1800s it's 580 miles of track had to cross the great rift valley several rivers and some of the most inhospitable territory it finally reached Kismu. <laughs> Kismu. <laughs> Why did I sound like a fucking mutant? <laughs> All right, let me read that again. It finally reached Kismu on Lake Victoria in 1901. It took 27 more years for the railroad to actually be extended to Kampala, Uganda. All right. So Patterson wrote a book about the Savo man-eaters, and in it, he claims that the lions were responsible for the death of 135 people. Fucking hell. Patterson took the hides and heads of these lions and had them in his home as rugs until they were sold to the Field Museum of Natural History in 1924, 25 years later, for $5,000. Can you imagine having these... uh, Just wipe your feet on the lion there before you come in. Yeah. So, I did the math. Oh, sorry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, $5,000 in old-timey money, I guess in the 1920s, yeah, is $76,090.35. Wow. That's yeah. quite a pretty penny. Yeah. The museum restored the skins, and the lions were reconstructed as they would have looked like in life. The skulls and the hides are on display today in this museum in Chicago. More recently, an article by Patterhands and Noski claims that the 135 body count cited in Patterson's book was exaggerated, and it was more like 28 to 31 victims. Mm. They based their claim on having access to Patterson's original journal that was given to them by a descendant of Patterson's. One could argue this was a rough draft to like the actual book that Patterson 
wrote. Yeah. That didn't include the amount of information Patterson's book had. And there was this long-ass study done with tons of variables that could prove that the kill count was more in the 30s, which I'll, I'll go into in a little bit. But, um, but yeah, so, like, it could very well be, like, maybe when he wrote the original, he didn't have the full information, but when he wrote the book, he did have it. He found he was talking to X, Y, and Z, and they said, oh, no, this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, it's it's his journal. I, I've written journals, and I'm just not going to go back and retract my statement to myself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just something that he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to still take that. Yeah. Because according to my journal, you know, back when I was fucking, I don't know, 12 years old, like my favorite color was, I don't know, pink and, you know, like, you're going to tell me my favorite color is pink. I'm going to tell you it's purple now. Things change. <laughs> I had a Snoopy diary. All right. <laughs> Good. That, that is all. <laughs> all right. So the two lion specimens in Chicago Field Museum are known as FMNH. 23970 the standing mount so they're ones they're one that appears to be standing and the other one's crouching okay that one was killed on december 9th 1898 the other one is fmnh 23969 which is again the crouching mount killed on the 29th of december of the same year Recent studies on the isotopic signature analysis of 13C and nitrogen-15 in their bone collagen and hair keratin were published in 2009 using realistic assumptions on the consumable tissue per victim, lion energetic needs, and their assimilation efficiencies. Researchers compared the man-eater signatures to the various reference standards. Savo lions with normal diets, grazers, and browsers from Savo East and Savo West, the skeletal remains of Taita people from the early 20th century, interpolation of their estimates across the nine months of recorded man-eating behavior suggested that FMNH23969 ate the equivalent of 10.5 humans and FMNH23970 ate 24.2 humans. So they reckon that they ate more than what the journal is saying that they ate. Yeah. Well, no, it's... So it matches up, actually. It matches up. But uh, the diet of the victims would also affect their own isotopic signature so apparently like every body has their own isotopic signature depending on you know like uh whether you're vegetarian or not so a low meat diet would produce a signature more typical of herbivores in the victim and that would affect the outcome of the test you see what i'm saying so technically what that means is those tests that they ran to figure out how many humans these lions ate, um, that's only an approximate of 
how many meat-eating humans they ate. Right. So it could be that Patterson's number is accurate because if if they if they were mostly vegetarian, then it would make sense that they would yeah, yeah. would have eaten more humans. Also, uh these numbers they don't take into account how many people died by just lion injuries you know what i'm saying so sure most of the people who were attacked were probably not eaten as they probably had to drop their prey or run away right yeah patterson's book just says okay these lions were responsible for these many deaths he didn't exactly say how many these are how many people they ate like that's a huge difference you know like because these people are like these people that are doing these studies are like well the body count is more like this it's like okay well if you're you want to get really down into the yeah it's very likely i think in my opinion by reading all these things that sure you know maybe the, these lines didn't completely consume 135 people but they probably did have a lot to do with the deaths of these 135 people yeah yeah you feel me one other thing also this research also does not disprove the belief in the laborers who were living in terror every day on the settlement in 1898 that the lions were just killing the men for pleasure, which is not normal lion behavior. Yeah, but that's what they were thinking. Well, if they were coming in every single day, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Because, I mean, it could... And I'm not sure how true that is, but maybe it had more to do with, like, oh, they couldn't finish the human that they caught and was out in the field eating because something scared them off and that made them believe that that these lions were killing just for pleasure there has been recorded instance instances that animals have displayed that kind of behavior Mm. why did the lions start eating the men in the first place one possible cause is that one of the lions had a messed up tooth which you can still see on the skull of the animal if you go to the museum. They say that it caused him to redirect his focus to slower and softer prey. Humans fit that bill. But this holds no weight, as Patterson wrote in his book that he had damaged that tooth with his rifle when the lion tried attacking him. Oh, So that's out. Yeah. Another possible reason an outbreak of rinderpest, which is cattle plague, in 1898 devastated the lion's usual prey, forcing them to find alternative food sources. Okay. Another possibility, the Savo lions may have been accustomed to finding dead humans at the Savo River crossing. Slave caravans to the center of the East African slave trade, Zanzibar, routinely crossed the river here. In 2017, a study carried out by the team of Dr. Bruce Patterson found that one of the lions had an infection at the root of his canine tooth, which made it hard for the lion to hunt. So they're saying the chip tooth may not have been a big, like a big deal, but that infection definitely would have been. Right, right. Lions normally use their jaws to grab prey like zebras and wildebeest to suffocate them. There's also, while I was doing this kind of research 
there was actually another case of a man-eater lion that I was completely unaware of, but I found it, so I'm going to tell you about it. Okay. In September 91, 1991, while on a hunting safari to Zambia, Zambia, Africa, yeah, Wayne, Zambia. <laughs> Zambia sounds like a zombie yeah. country, <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Hosick was asked by the locals if he could help hunt down a man-eating lion that had been terrorizing the town of Mufue. Wayne agreed to take on the task. With some serious effort put forth, the lion was finally shot about two weeks later. It turned out to be a like a, the biggest fucking man-eating lion ever recorded. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I thought this was interesting that that man-eater lion was mainless just like the Savo ones yeah weird Wayne also aware of the story of the Savo man eaters and their less than perfect mounting job saw to it that this lion's skin was properly collected and dried later Wayne had this lion mounted and basically taxidermied and he donated it to the field museum and it went on display in 1999, which is the same museum that the Savo Man Eaters are in. Right, right. They're in not Chicago. Mm-hmm, they're not displayed together, but they're displayed in a part of the museum, kind of just like on its own. But the reason why it's displayed that way is so you can see it from all angles. Ah, okay. Yeah. All in all, the Man Eater of Mafue was responsible for eating at least six people. So, yeah, that's my story. Right on. Yeah. What do so you think? So, watch out for them lions, folks. I know, because they could be man-eating lions. Well, it is, like, obviously, this is what the movies are about. Yeah. But it's not to think, like... I thought it was so interesting, because a lot, like, okay, so I've seen this movie, right, when I was younger. Yeah. And I've seen other movies that say that they're based on a true story or they're loosely based on true stories. And I, you know, I look up these stories to see how embellished they are. Even the ones that say that they're based on a true story, they're generally like a mockumentary. You ever heard those kind of movies? Like the Blair Witch Project or uh, the fourth kind that was also a mockumentary. So I've... I'm like, okay, you know, like we found this movie when we were browsing through movies, like things on Amazon Prime. And we're like, the other day, Adam and I and my family were all like, oh, let's watch it, you know? Mm-hmm. So we watched it again. And I was like, you know what? Let me look this up. Because when I first watched it as a kid, we didn't have Google, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So I looked it up to just see just how embellished it was. And it is actually very fucking accurate. Obviously, they took liberties with some of the characters and like... Yeah, I mean, like Val Kilmer was the, yeah, the main guy in Smoke right, Show. Right, you know, and <laughs> you know, he probably didn't have a pregnant wife waiting for him at home. But those kind of details were the ones that they added. The actual story like, itself... Story itself like, was it really was, true to the yeah. core. Well, that's cool. But, like, it's hard to put yourself in that situation because especially, like, how long ago it was and where it was. 
like it sounds like a mystical Disneyland like you know like, yeah but if you were to think of like I don't know a wolf or a bear right and you know that they exist not too far from civilization but you just leave them be and then they're they leave you be yeah but can you imagine all of a sudden there's one that finds your neighborhood and it's like that's my food source from now on yeah that's insane like that's the same and i think it probably seems very like very disney-like because it kind of like takes me back to jaws right it's like the shark that you know and acquired a taste for humans you know it's just very cinematic and it's you know like it's idea it's very cinematic yeah, yeah. but these motherfuckers <laughs> are out there these are why this story exists yeah that's not you know i mean i guess it makes sense because, i mean think about it though like i wonder if that movie was like jaws was based on stories like this because like i told you before it there have been animal attacks you know specific very extenuating circumstance animal attacks yeah. like these particular animals like elephants and stuff have done it before right they've gone after just humans yeah, yeah. you know so that shit's crazy <laughs> <laughs> yes that shit is crazy <laughs> that's my summation so yeah like sharks they don't f going back to jaw sharks they don't like the taste of humans right but what if one day one of them was like you know what human not so bad yeah yeah you know anyway <laughs> <laughs> so that's it guys yeah good job dulce thanks i hope you guys liked it even though it was like <laughs> there's no ghosts but hey like that that movie that i was telling you about with val kilmer it's called ghost in the darkness so if you're looking for a ghost there you go yeah no it is it's a good film um but yeah no i enjoyed that story i there really want to go it, so. i really want to go to the field museum well next time we're at, in chicago after the apocalypse yeah we can go check it out but they do look gimpy they do like they look like they were used as rogues for 20 something years and yeah. then forced back into shape that didn't serve them like yeah I, I see and that's the thing though looking at them now you don't see how fucking scary they probably were yeah yeah in their prime right on but well, the new one probably does look it as, looks a little better you can see it it looks as scary as the other two probably were yeah yeah i mean either way i'm not gonna fuck with it with a lion yeah mane or no mane yeah I mean, these animals are fucking huge. I mean, have you seen a gorilla? Different <laughs> animal. But yes, I have. <laughs> animals can be very large. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, it is true that like uh, the first time I saw a grizzly bear was in a zoo in Toronto. Oh, I've never seen one. Yeah, but I was just like, oh, look, lovely bear. Yeah. But this fucker stood up and I think they were like, it was nine foot tall or something like that. Damn. And when you see it in person, it's just like terrifying yeah like then you genuinely understand like oh my god i'm still very sorry that i didn't get to see that wolf in toronto when i go when i go visit you while we were dating did did we not go to the zoo in dublin the zoo in dublin has wolves but they're not very big 
I think it was. Well, did they do they come out in the winter? Yeah. We didn't see them. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So that's it, guys, for this week. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, next week we will finish the Demon of Brownsville Road once and for all. Um, and probably won't have another series like this for a long time. So, but if, if we do, it won't come from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I guess that's it. Again, we say the same thing every week. Please make sure to follow us on... Everywhere. Everywhere. We're Weekly Creep everywhere. Yeah, just you can just Google Weekly Creep. We'll, In the we'll shower, we're Weekly Creep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In we the also... bathroom. <laughs> we're weekly... In the kitchen, we're Weekly Creep. Still Weekly Creep. Yep. We also got uh, a bunch of stickers this week. So if you do want to leave us a review on itunes five stars um, <laughs> make sure you screenshot it and send it to us so we can send you a sticker in the mail and if you have already left us a review like that doesn't matter it's still screenshot it send it to us we'll send you a sticker and check out our red bubble for our sick ass merch mm-hmm. and yeah buy something with pork chop on it let's make her famous yeah also like because you can buy pork chop stickers and stuff like you can buy stuff on there for like only a couple of dollars you don't have to break the bank yeah um but yeah that's it all right we'll see you next week yes we will okay bye bye we can go check it out but they do look gimpy they do. Like, they look like they were used as rogues for 20-something years and yeah. then forced back into shape. That didn't serve them. Like, yeah. I, I see. And that's the thing, though. Looking at...